You're listening to Scaling Up Services, where we speak with entrepreneurs, authors, business experts, and thought leaders to give you the knowledge and insights you need to scale your service-based business faster and easier. And now, here is your host, business coach, Bruce Eckfeld. Are you a CEO looking to scale your company faster and easier? Check out Thrive Roundtable. Thrive combines a moderated peer group mastermind, expert one-on-one coaching, access to proven growth tools, and a 24-7 support community. Created by Inc. award-winning CEO and certified scaling-up business coach Bruce Eckfeldt, Thrive will help you grow your business more quickly and with less drama. For details on the program, visit Eckfeldt.com thrive. That's E-C-K-F-E-L-D-T dot com slash thrive. Welcome, everyone. This is Scaling Up Services. I'm Bruce Eckfeldt. I'm your host. And our guest today is David Carvajal. He is CEO of Dave Partners. We're going to talk about recruiting. We're going to talk about talent. Key conversation for companies in the service-based businesses. Finding talent is critical to being able to grow and scale your company. If you can't find the right people, you might as well hang it up. It's just not possible. Uh, if you're if you don't have a good system, a good strategy, good process for finding the right talent, attracting them, recruiting them, onboarding them. So critical conversation. I'm excited to have this. With that, Dave, welcome to the program. Thanks, Bruce. Thanks for having me. So why don't we start with a little bit of your background. So uh, you've been in talent for a long time and in many businesses and many facets. Tell us about the journey. How, how did you get to what you're doing today? What were some of the experiences you had around really kind of making talent work? Yeah. Yeah, that's great. You know, Bruce, I've been thinking about recruiting for more than 20 years now. Yeah. And, you know, I've met a lot of people in recruiting. Uh, I haven't met anyone as crazy about recruiting as I am. (laughs) And I mean, I just love this stuff. I love connecting people. I love helping entrepreneurs just build really big businesses. And, you know, look, it's my firm belief that everything bad that happens at a company is fundamentally a people problem. Yeah. And conversely, I also think that recruiting is actually the greatest opportunity that an entrepreneur has, not only in building their business, but in in really kind of achieving their mission in life. Right. And so, uh, you know, my journey, it's a bit of a funny one. I started my life, you know, I went down to uh, college at Clemson University, Mm -hmm. came back to New York City and I just wanted to tear it up. Immediately, I took a job in the investment banking analyst program at Prudential. I was on track to become a big banker. Uh And I realized that, you know, while while they were making a ton of money, which frankly at the time was very attractive to me, I discovered that the world of corporate finance and and investment banking, uh, I mean, I'm sure there's some wonderful people in that business, but the people that I was surrounded with were either absolutely miserable (laughs) or they were the biggest jokes I'd ever met. Sometimes they were both. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I just decided early in my career, I didn't want to be either one of those things. And so I ended up leaving and I wasn't sure what I was going to do with my life. I ended up at the top recruiting firm in New York City. I never knew that the whole business of recruiting and headhunting had existed. And so when I got there, I said, wow, this is fantastic. They're going to find me a great job. I ended up somehow speaking with the guy who started the company, the recruiting firm. He had 60 executive search professionals from the top schools with vastly more experience than I had back then. And, you know, he convinced me that if I was willing to work hard, I could be really successful. 
And, you know, I remember saying to the guy, look, that sounds like a bunch of baloney. <laughs> you know, my dad would get up at four in the morning to come be a printer. And, you know, for as long as yeah. I could remember, the glory of hard work was installed in us as children. If what you're saying is true, I said to the guy, you know, could I meet your top two people? I'd like to figure out what they're doing to be successful. Good, and smart. I'll just tell you whether I think I can do it or not. Yeah. And so it turns out, you know, the way people were looking for jobs back then was through these things called newspapers. <laughs> <laughs> I vaguely remember York, these things. It was the New York like Times. big and they're black and white. And <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, you literally had to get your hands dirty. Oh, you know? boy. And, and that paper comes out at 6 a.m. on Sundays. And so literally it was a gut check as to whether I was willing to work that hard. Six days a week starting at 6 a.m. on Sundays. I was 24 years old at the time. It turns out I was willing to work that hard. And so I said to the guy, if you hire me, I'm going to be the best guy in this office in two years. I just knew that I could outwork you know, Perfect. anybody. A public declaration of, of where yeah, you're right. going to be in two years. I love it. You know, and, and so I, I made the commitment. And the, you know, he hired me on the spot. I put my plan to work. I worked my tail off, Bruce. By by nine o'clock on Mondays, when everybody else was coming into the office for the first time after being in the in the Hamptons all weekend, I had already made 200 phone calls and logged my entire territory into the system. And so it literally took me 18 months to become the top guy in the office. Yeah. And it was fantastic. I was young, single, living in Manhattan, making the kind of money I wanted to make. Finally, I never would have left if not for something much greater, much bigger. Of course, the problem was it was the mid 90s by then. I was talking to technology guys all day long. And back then, you know, New York City tech uh, really meant one thing. And that was finance. Yeah. All finance. So I was pulling the guy out of Merrill Lynch who had developed a fixed income trading desk using C++, Unix, and Sybase. And it was only because a week earlier, <laughs> the folks at the J. Aaron's group at Goldman Sachs needed a VP of fixed income trading technology. Yeah. So doing that kind of horse trading all day, every day in the mid-90s, it hit me that this internet thing was just going to change everything. Yeah. And I had to be a part of it. The same guy who started that recruiting firm and had asked me to join the, the recruiting company, he was the same guy that asked me to leave the company. And I was fortunate that he did because he was leaving. And he handpicked me to come along with him to start this tiny little internet company. And and the truth is, Bruce, we didn't know what the heck we were doing. There were already <laughs> 150 companies doing the online recruitment. Yeah. All we knew or what we thought was that because we were headhunters, we thought we could build a system for recruiting better than anybody else. Yeah. And so we started doing it. Uh, I ended up running sales. I created a training program where I could take a kid right out of college and make them profitable to the company within two and a half months. Wow. I showed this to the CEO. He and I made a pact that I would hire two salespeople for every one non-revenue producer. Okay. And then I proceeded yeah. to hire the first 500 people at Hot Jobs. I opened eight offices around the country. Yeah. We had 500% revenue growth every single year. In four years, we took it from 400,000 to 96 million in revenues. Wow. We had 68% wow. EBITDA margins. Yeah. And so it was a beautiful business. Nice. We took the company public. It was a $1.2 billion market cap. Yep. And then 9-11 happened yeah. and the whole world changed. We were a jobs company and, and we were affected, you know, drastically. But, but what happened was we had so much momentum that we actually continued to grow when everything else kind of got stagnant and stuck. We managed to continue to grow. And then the number one internet media company on the entire planet at that time was Yahoo. Mm -hmm. And February of 2002, we closed the deal. We decided to sell. Yeah. And so five years, soup to nuts, we were done with a double exit. And it was fantastic. I was all of 31 years old at that time. And the truth is, I didn't know what the heck to do with my <laughs> Lost at sea. Yeah. Oh, um, you know, fortunately, I, uh, you know, I had fallen in love. Uh, and, and so we, we managed to fall deeper in love, get married, have babies. Good. And I woke up three years later and I was literally 60 pounds heavier than I am now. Oh, man. It was really bad. I would, you know, sympathy, pregnancy, you know, the, the whole thing. Oh, yeah. I mean, I was, just, I was in really bad shape. I went to the doctor. And he said, look, uh, you've got to make some changes. Yeah, I was you got a choice. Bad. 
wanted to put a bunch of drugs, you know, prescriptions on. And, and, and so I just said, look, there's got to be a plan B. What does that look like? He said, well, you'd have to lose some weight, get in shape, maybe eat some green things. <laughs> said, I said, let's make that plan A. I can do that. Yeah. And so I decided to get healthy fast. I discovered triathlons and now I do Ironmans for fun. Yeah. And the second thing I did is I called up some guys that I had hired at the first company at Hot Jobs. And I said, look, guys, it's time to get back to work. I'm never taking time off like this again. I need to be productive. I need to work. Yeah to create. And so let's, let's go do something. And, and we started another company. Uh, that company was called Ladders. We got it up to about 400 people, a little over 85 million in revenues. Uh, and by 2008, there we were again, it was the hottest game in town. By 2009, I decided, Bruce, you know, that credit crisis thing happened. Yep. I decided I didn't want to do this anymore for one company. I wanted to help as many as I could, you know, and, I, and, and over the course of that time frame, building those two companies, I'd really picked up some strong pattern recognition in, in, in watching people who were very successful in their careers and also people who didn't quite make it, you know, and, and weren't able yeah. to scale with the business, scale with the company. And, and in fact, we're holding things back or, you know, teams or people or themselves. And so, you know, I started getting calls in 2009 by some of the top venture capital investors from around the country who were looking at New York City as a place to make increasingly more investments in Internet startups. And they kept calling me, you know, really for handouts, for, for free advice on who I could refer to them to run revenue Got or it. to be their chief technology officer or, or to be their you know chief product officer or they needed a co-founder. And so I did that for a little while and, and um, you know, did a bunch of horse trading. And then I woke up one day and I said, well, you know, I could actually make money doing this. <laughs> <laughs> and so I decided to to hang up my own shingle, Dave Partners, uh-huh. and so that's what I've been doing for the last ten years. And you know, I'm I'm having more fun than ever before. Yeah, good. And and um, you know, really, really kind of selective about the. We're a boutique firm, mm-hmm. you know, services business, and and um, you know, have have gone through the ups and downs of our own kind of service model, but finally, you know, was able to figure out the kind of optimal size and cash flow and and kind of business that I that I wanted to run and still be able to do Ironmans and spend time with my family. Yeah. Well, it's an interesting, I mean, I, you know, obviously super impressive, you know, kudos for the exits and and building the companies. I think that the really interesting thing about your story is, is that kind of break period. And, and I see this again and again, you've got, you know, hugely successful entrepreneurs, they create a hugely valuable company, they get an exit and, and then they're, then they really don't know what to do themselves. I mean, they kind of had this vision of, oh, I'm going to sit on the beach or I'm going to, I'm going to kick back. And, and that's like the last thing <laughs> that ends up being a good choice for them. And they, you know, best, best scenarios, they get bored and they finally do something else. Worst scenarios, they start creating all sorts of other problems in their lives because they need to solve problems. They're just they're they're hungry to be problem solvers. And if they're not finding a way to apply that in a in a positive, fruitful venture, you can really end up kind of creating creating some nightmare situations. But and I, and I'm really I mean I'm fascinated because you know, I mean obviously you've you've had some you know some excess that have given you success and and you've been able to kind of use this to now dial in a really focused niche area that which is I think probably a combination of what you really love to do what you're really good at and, and a particularly need in the market that probably only you can solve at some level just because of your background and connections and access to certain kinds of talent so a great example of of leveraging those things to create a really really unique service business so let's talk about talent and and what you've seen or uh, one of the comments you made I thought was really interesting is this the slight difference between those who have been highly successful and those that didn't quite make it. What are some of the things that you noticed in terms of 
what were good indicators or things that would predict or give you a clue of, you know, someone that would successfully grow with the business versus someone who wouldn't and end up becoming kind of a bottleneck to, to the organizational growth. Yeah, that's great. That's great. So two things before, well, before I, I, I get into that, um, yeah. you know, you triggered something for me, Bruce, that I think is worth sharing, you know, about the kind of entrepreneur's journey, right? Yeah. Um, I, I think you're absolutely right. I, and I've known a number of people that reach just extraordinary levels of success. Yeah. And, and, you know, when you get to the promised land, you can sometimes be lost lost because you've been fighting so hard for your mission to achieve your mission that once you actually achieve it, you know, and, um, in that kind of period when, when I was wandering the desert, um, (laughs) you you know, uh, I had the good fortune of really doing a little bit of work with, uh, I'm sure you've heard of him, Tony Robbins. Oh yeah. Right. And, um, so I did some coaching with him at the highest levels. I mean, literally we went to India twice, you know, and and we're hanging out like this and, you know, and he said something to me, Bruce, uh, that I think is worth sharing because at the time, and, and when I repeated, it's going to sound a bit trite, but at the time it was exactly what I needed to hear. And it really kind of helped get me back on track and, and align with my core kind of like values and, and, and what I think I was meant to do in the world. Yeah. Right. And what he said to me, he said, look, Dave, when Buzz Aldrin came back from the moon, he literally became an alcoholic. And it was because, wow. you know, he, he couldn't yeah. get out of bed because what was he going to do today that was as exciting yeah. as as what he had already achieved? I mean, he's one of two people that have ever stepped, you know, foot on yeah. on the moon. Right. And so what Tony said to me. There? Yeah. Yeah. So what Tony said to me is that, look, the secret to when, you know, once you get to the promised land, what you've got to do is find a purpose that's bigger than yourself. You've got to find a bigger purpose. You've got to figure out how to serve others. Yeah. And it was absolutely profound. And it, it just kind of knocked me on the floor. And, and um, it really connected me with, you, you know, uh, actually, wow, I, I wasn't going to talk about this. But, you know, the reason I do this, Bruce, uh, on the one hand, I'm helping entrepreneurs build billion dollar businesses, right? I'm in the world of uh, venture backed companies that are really kind of, you know, usually I get brought in by the chairman of the board, somebody who writes a big check, 20, yeah. 40, 50 million dollars into a hot, high growth company. And now it's all about accelerated growth, yeah. right? And that growth has to be intelligent, strategic. Right. But but make no mistake about it. The venture capital investors are literally renting money. Mm-hmm. They want their money back in four or five years and they want to make a large return, yep. ideally a 10x return on their money. Right. And, and the only way to do that is called team building. And team building is two things. It's hardcore recruiting and culture. Yeah. And, you know, so so I kind of get brought into situations that are a bit of a pressure cooker. Right. And there sure. is no room for mistakes. Yeah. And and so, you know, going into the second thing to, to the thing you asked me earlier and, and the difference that I see between people who are successful on their entrepreneurial journey and, and the people that are not. The big difference is that EGF people who learn how to function by not using EGF end up being the most successful. And EGF gets you into a whole world of trouble. And when like I stopped using EGF for myself and, and when I can coach and influence other entrepreneurs to stop using EGF, the, the amount of success that they begin to see, it just gets consistent, steady, and they start really having accelerated growth. And by EGF, I mean entrepreneurs gut feeling. Oh, interesting. <laughs> and so it is such an elusive, you know, it, it's such an allure. For yeah. entrepreneurs, you know, they think everybody thinks they have to use their gut. They think they have like a special kind of spider sense <laughs> and, and they have to use their gut. And, and it's more true in recruiting than in anything else. Right. Because, I mean, people are better off doing their own taxes 
doing their own dentistry, doing their own <laughs> surgery. <laughs> right? But the thing that will cause them the most skull-crushing pain, suffering, and brain damage is making a bed higher. It is so true. Right? And so that's why I say that, you know, look, recruiting is both the biggest opportunity in entrepreneurship, and it's also the greatest cause for failure. Yeah. And when these when entrepreneurs are able to move away from their EGF model and move towards something that is significantly more scientific and KPI and data driven, mm-hmm. that's when they're going to begin to have significantly more success. Yeah. I mean, I've seen this all the time. It's kind of, you know, they, they do a couple interviews, they talk with them on the phone for a while, they bring them in and, and they make these hiring decisions based on uh, not, not only purely subjective and qualitative kind of data, but the data that's pulled from experiences have nothing to do with the actual job. Mm. <laughs> you know, it's like I put them in a room and I talk to them. Well, what is the job? Well, they've got to go out and sell or they got to write code. It's like, okay, well, you know, so how are you going to evaluate them being able to talk into, you know, in a room with their ability to write code? It's like, oh, well, I, I can figure that out based on the conversation. I was like, oh, wow. You know, this, the, the, I think the whole kind of interviewing process is just rife with, with false, you know, false data or poor data and data collected in things that have very, very little to do with actual job performance. Yeah. 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 I think that's right. And I'm fascinated about, you know, the, I mean, you're clearly operating an area where the cost of failure is is huge. And so it creates this pressure cooker situation. I guess, what are some of the things that you're kind of evaluating when you're going into a situation, when you're going working with a company who needs to bring in a new senior level person onto leadership team? I guess, what are the things you're looking at in terms of the team and how they're set up and and what they might need based on the nature of the team and, and the business model? I guess, what, what are the things, the things you're looking for to understand who would be a good fit or who's going to be highly successful in this particular situation above and beyond just the skill? based stuff in terms of, well, do they know do they know this particular technology or that they have experience in this kind of industry? What are the things that you look for in terms of the team? Yeah, that's great. So two things. One, you know, look, there's a set of criteria that I look for in entrepreneurs that I actually want to work with. Mm-hmm. And then once I decide that, you know, I'm highly selective about the client, you know, because yeah. I, I run a boutique firm. Yep. My buddies are the guys from that original search firm that run a lot of the big practices at, at the big executive retained search firms. Yep. And, you know, they've all tried to get me to come run some big part of their organization. Sure. And and what I say to them, and, and the problem that I have with them is that, look, you guys are all trying to be the biggest. I have zero interest in being the biggest. I just want to be the best. And so the problem that trying to be the biggest gets them into is that they end up taking on all the searches they can, and then their searches will drag on for 10, 11, 12 months, yeah. whereas I'm averaging 68 days to close. And wow. I've got like a very disciplined, systematic process that I'm averaging 68 days to close because I go into it with a two-month time frame, you know, for closure. For, for mm-hmm. getting this process done. And it's the same amount of work. You know, there's there's actually a, a derivative of the Pareto principle that says work will expand to fit the time oh, allocated. Yeah, yeah. So if you're on a time frame that, you know, is 10, 11, 12 months, it'll take you that long to get it done. But but what I do is very different. So I run a very, very strong process that begins with number one and, and, and what I look for both in the entrepreneurs that I work with and then to be able to kind of help create a very cohesive, strong team that is able to drive accelerated growth mm-hmm. is first and foremost, Almost, my entrepreneur has to have a growth mindset, right? So they're really yeah. two qualities. One is they're highly ambitious, which, you know, that quality exists in spades, uh, but they really have to have a growth mindset, yeah. right? And they've got to be, because I believe that all learning and growth 
requires an openness to learning and growth. And so they've got to have some level of humility, some level of openness, right? They have to kind of know that there are some things that maybe they don't know, right? Because then I can actually have some influence and, and you know, take them through a process and a model that will forever change the way they think about recruiting and building culture in their company. Yeah. And so the way that I do that, the very first thing that I do is we, we actually sit down, when we kick off a search, we'll spend 45 minutes to an hour and we'll create precise clarity on one piece of paper, a one pager called a blueprint. Okay. Right. And uh, I actually walk through it in great detail. Uh, I'll, I'll just kind of uh, highlight it. Yeah. But uh, in my book, Hire Smart from the Start, on page 97, I walk through exactly how to do this. You know, and so I'll give you kind of like the, the highlights. So on this one page, the page is in three parts, right? A top, a middle, and a, and a bottom section. The top part is all about the company. And so it's about the core values, the culture, and the mission of the company. And while, you know, I'm just going to kind of reach the highlights, I sometimes also spend you know, like a whole morning, like four hours with an executive team just to make sure that there is proper alignment and that we create that the right way. Yeah, critical. And, and you only have to do that like once every two years or yep. once every 18 months. But it's so important to get that, right? And and I'll just kind of give you some bullet points on, on how I actually do that. I think it's so important to look out 10 years from now, for example, right? So mm-hmm. I'll, I'll take a CEO and, and I'll usually kind of go through the mental exercise first with the CEO and then we'll do it as an executive team at an offsite. But we'll, we'll reverse engineer from 10 years, we'll go back to three years and then one year, right? And mm-hmm. it's only by doing that can you get real clarity, right? Because if the CEO thinks that in 10 years, we're going to be a $3 billion company and, and have, you know, 60% margins. And if the CFO thinks is on a completely different page and thinks they're going to be a $10 million company, you know, that's an enormous gap. Yeah. And we need to kind of have a real big conversation as an executive team to make sure everybody's on, sees the vision and understands what we're trying to do here. Okay. So the top part is all, all about the core values, the culture, and the mission of the organization. The middle part, and this is probably the most important part for me in executing an executive search, and, and I like to go, I like to begin with the end in mind, right? So I want to get clarity around the outcomes first and then reverse engineer. Sure. So that middle part has three parts as well, going from the right side to the left side. So I start on the right side because I want to begin with the end in mind. And what we do there is we list out the top three or four strategic priorities, of the role that, of, of this, this is now of the role that you're trying to fill. Got it. That's right. So, so the one pager looks like it has a top part, a middle part, and a bottom part. You know, equal thirds, yep. right? And then the middle part also has three parts, but not horizontal, rather vertical, right? So, so three sort of three columns in that middle. Yeah, row. three columns. So it's got a left side, a middle yeah. side, and a right side. And I start on the right side, and on the right side we get absolute clarity on what are the top three or four strategic priorities. I think that every executive level conversation should begin and end with this in mind. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Like, why are we getting out of bed? What are we trying to do yeah, here? Yeah. And usually it looks like you know the first bullet is is maybe a a top line revenue goal. It might be the second bullet might be a margin. The third bullet might be some kind of, you know, truth about the marketplace. We're going to be the number one player in this market, or we're going to create an entirely new category between these two markets. You know, it might look something like that, right? So we're going to get absolute clarity on what are the strategic priorities that we're looking to do here as an executive team. Then we get to the second part, which is what are the success factors? What does this executive 
need to do? What do they get to do over the next 6, 12, 24 months that will help drive those strategic priorities? How will we know 12 months from now that this executive that we just hired was successful? Right. What does success look like for them? So now that we've gotten the strategic priorities, the success factors, then we get the third column on the left, which is probably the most important for me, which is what are then the core competencies necessary for this executive to be successful in the role? Got it. And, and what are some for at that, that level? What are some of the ex- typical or example competencies that you would be putting into that box? Great. So typically, for example, I might have an engineering team that, you know, has three engineers and we need to scale to 15 engineers in the next 12 months, right? So the competency that this CTO that we're gonna hire or, or VP of engineering, the new one that needs to come in, he needs to have the competency of one, maybe selecting eight players. Yeah. Also might need to have the competency of team building, yeah. like actually building a culture yeah. within, you know, you know like uh, for, for a world-class tech organization, yeah. right? Might, um, uh, depending on the, the composure of the rest of the team, of the person who's running the product organization or the marketing organiz- organization, maybe the CTO also needs to be a little bit visionary, or maybe they actually need to be less visionary, but more detail-oriented. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. And so uh, I'm a big believer. And the reason, you, you know, I'm, I'm big on growth mindset, Bruce, is because, you know, the other quality that a CEO needs to have is they need to recognize that no leader is perfect, including themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Right? This concept <laughs> of incomplete leader, complete team yeah. is very important. Right. It's about building a team that complements each other. Yeah. Complementary capabilities. That's how you achieve your mission as a team. That's how you win. Right. And so my one pager in three parts, the top part is about the company. The middle part is about the role and the bottom part is split in two columns. And on the left column, we're going to put the must haves and the right column. We're going to put the nice to haves. And it's only going to be three must haves and it's going to be three or four nice to haves because if everything is important, then nothing is important. (laughs) We have to do a forced prioritization. Exactly. Exactly. Right. And that's how we not only get somebody who's going to be super effective in the role, but they're also going to help us achieve our mission. Right. And that's yeah. important. Well, and and what I, th- what I find is just super powerful in the way that you set this up is two big things. I mean, one is you're keying this off of where do we want to be? Like, where is the company going? Right. Because we can go lots of different places. And depending on where we go, we're going to need a different team. We're going to need different skills. So unless we really articulate where do we want to be in the next three, five, ten years, you know, we're, we're going to it's going to be tough to decide if this person could be a great person, they just may not be the person that's going to get us there. So understanding where we want to be is really key. And I, I love that focus. The other thing that I think you're doing here, which I think is so many people don't do when they go to hiring is, is really prioritizing the top must need skills, uh, the, the capabilities, the skills, the things that are really going to drive success in this role, because it's so easy to, to you interview somebody and they're like, oh, but this is great. And this is great. And this is great. And you find all sorts of great things about them. But if you haven't figured out what are the key things for you and and really the few key critical things it's going to be impossible to really evaluate that person based on is this really the right match or not and, and if you have a list of 15 things you want in a person it's like all right well you can have everything you want but you can have anything you want but not everything you want <laughs> you really got to choose like what are those things that you're going to get and, and, and i think you run into two risks i think you run in the risk of letting go candidates that may not have everything but if they have your core things that could actually be a really good fit and also you know finding people who are just a little too generalist because you're trying to get too many things on there and they're really not experts in any key things that are going to be driving our success. So I, I think this is, you know, brilliant strategy in terms of really diagnosing the company needs in terms of things that are going to help you recruit. Yeah. Yeah. 
That's right. And where, I guess, uh, you know, as you've worked with some of these companies and uh, seen, you know, potentially sort of seen them make mishires and things like that, where do companies typically make mistakes on this or where, where do they mm. mishire and, and what are, what are, do you feel are kind of the underlying causes or reasons for that? Yeah, I love it. I love it. So this is going to take a little while. Two big parts to that question. Two part answer. One is in my book, I write about the iceberg model. The thing that took down the Titanic was not the piece of ice that was sticking out of the water. That was easily visible. But the mass of ice that was underneath the water was 10 times bigger. And that's usually the case, right? Like when you put a gl- piece of ice in a glass, just a little piece of it sticks out of the, you know, yeah. um, the surface line, right? The, the mass is underneath the water. And I equate that to recruiting, right? The, the piece of ice that's above the waterline are the words, the actions, the behaviors that people exhibit. And that's like surface level stuff. And the mistake that most hiring managers make, whether it's a CEO or, or, or any hiring manager makes, is that they get bamboozled into listening to the words and the actions and the behaviors when rather they need to look. I, I say that recruiting is actually a leadership competency. Yeah. And like all competencies, you can actually get better at it. Right. And so like all facets of leadership, you can develop your own personal leadership capabilities, but you have to actually make an effort. You have to read books. You have to learn from people on how to do these things, right? And so recruiting, I think, is about learning that competency. And learning the recruiting competency is all about learning how to actually interview people and understand who they are through discourse, right? So the things that I look for and the things that I you know, work with my clients on are understanding what's underneath the surface line of the iceberg. And that includes things like values, beliefs, motivations, right? Because when you can actually understand the intrinsic motivators of a human being, then you can actually build this thing that is incredibly important business called trust, yep. right? And, and and what happens when you don't do that is then you end up having to write, you know, employee handbooks and manuals and a whole set of rules that have derivative sub rules and all these different <laughs> rules just because you want to get people to like actually behave the right way. Yeah. Prescriptive right? behavior. When, yeah. Yeah. And so, you, you know, I think, I think, um, Team building is really two things. It's the hardcore cold recruiting of the right people and then culture, right? It's really those two parts. And I'll, t- I'll say this, look, there was actually a big study done by uh, Deloitte and, um, you know, they studied like thousands of people, hiring managers and, and um, people that were hired. And literally what they came up with was that there are two big reasons why anyone succeeds or fails at any company. And the first reason is by far the biggest reason, bigger than the second reason. The first reason has everything to do with culture fit, whether their personal DNA matches the cultural DNA of the founder, of the CEO, of the leaders of the organization. The second reason, and, and that's responsible for about 60% of the reason why someone succeeds or fails at any company. About 20% of the reason why someone succeeds or fails at any company has to do with their technical capabilities. Yeah. And what happens with interviewing and recruiting is that most people spend entirely too much time focused on their technical capabilities, on looking at their resume, what they've actually accomplished, right? And and what, what I like to do is read between the lines. <laughs> yeah. Tell me why you made the decision. What, what's in between the two experiences? Why did you leave that place? And why did you go to the other place? What were you hoping to find at that other place? And was that actually true? 
right? What does their judgment and decision-making look like? And what drives them? Are, are they themselves, you know, driven by, by things at the surface level? Or are their intrinsic motivators, their values, their beliefs, their motivations aligned with our core values as an organization? Yeah, I can't agree more. I've just seen so many, so many teams that, you know, have huge opportunity and they're, they're going down kind of the scaling process. They hire, you know, a key executive and, and six months later, you know, they've let them go. And, you know, it was the perfect technical fit. Uh, this person, you know, had done this multiple times, you know, taken a company from A to B multiple times. You know, but when it came down to it, they just couldn't work effectively together as a team. And if your team's not going to work effectively together, then you're just you're dead in the water. It's yeah, really, that's really right. I, I can't tell you how many clients, yeah. you know, I recruit out of Google and Facebook and Amazon all the time. And I can't tell you how many clients think that that's like the magic yeah. silver bullet. Right. And, yeah. and that's exactly what ends up happening is, you know, those companies are already big. Right. You know, the best people that built those places worked there like 15 years ago. Yeah, exactly. Right. They're like no They're longer gone. there. Yeah. And it's exactly like these kinds of things. Right. It's almost like shiny penny syndrome. They think that that's the thing because they have Facebook on their resume that they're going to be a great hire. And and in fact, you know, I often say, look, it's the opposite. Yeah. Yeah. What any any good strategies or questions or how, how do you actually read between the lines? Is there anything that you could recommend to folks that are, you know, if they're going into an interview and they're looking at the lines on the resume, what can they do? to kind of dig in under that and, and get to that 90% that's below the waterline in terms of that person's, you know, the motivators, the drivers, the beliefs, the values, you know, above and beyond just the the results and the kind of technical skills that this person has. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so uh, there is a book that I read that actually kind of really helped form my thinking around how to do this, Bruce. And I do recommend it, although it was written by a PhD in organizational psychology <laughs> and it is guaranteed to put you to sleep in like three pages. <laughs> But that book is top grading. Yeah. And it's actually fantastic. I read that book, you know, and and I agreed with with a lot of it. The the challenge I had is that it requires you to spend like 37 hours I know. interviewing <laughs> each person. It's and like it was really written for like, that, yeah. you know, the CEO of GE or somebody. Yeah. And nobody has time for that. And so the book that I wrote, Hire Smart from the Start, in a lot of ways is kind of like an adapted version. I, you know, I figured out through practical experience how to actually do this in eight to 12 hours and have highly effective results, right? The, the process that I drive, and, and I'm gonna, I'll talk a little bit about my process, but the process that I drive uh, is designed to not just get one person who's gonna fit this role and, and be spectacular, but to actually create a completely different problem for my client, which is they're gonna have three finalist candidates that are so strong that they're gonna have a pickle of a time deciding which one of the three to prioritize as finalist A. Yeah. And that's a problem that I create every single time. And, and it starts by number one, really kind of understanding how to create that blueprint because that that's the target. Yeah. Another big mistake that most hiring managers make is that, you know, let's say they need an accountant. They'll just jump in and start interviewing accountants. Yeah. And and they might actually hire the best of five or six accountants that they interview. And that person will still only have 60% of what they need in that accountant, right? Because they never sat down to properly create the right blueprint. Anything that was ever great that was built by humans first started as a blueprint. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So so first and foremost, I always say, look, build a blueprint, get absolutely clear on, you know, if you're buying a car, you need to understand, do you need a pickup truck, exactly. a van, yeah. a sports car yeah. or a family car? Yeah. How many people, how fast, exactly. <laughs> how frequently, what gas mileage do you need? Yeah, exactly. It's not like you just go to some like auto mall and pick, you know, give yeah. me that one. 
You, yeah. you know, I mean, you really have to put some thought in advance and, and again, move away from this concept of, of EGF, right? Yeah. Let's get clarity. I think clarity is power. Yeah. Right. Let's get clear on exactly what we're going to do. Let's think on paper and let's write this down and get clear. Let's create a blueprint. And then I take them through a process. Right. And the process is this. The truth is that all recruiting has three parts, sourcing, screening and securing. Got and it. each one of those three parts, you know, the first part is the highest volume work uh-huh. and decreases over time. Right. But from a skill level perspective, the first part is the lowest skill and then goes up over time in terms of skill required, right? And so a lot of times where recruiting breaks down is that one of these three things is not being done sufficiently well from a qualitative perspective. And so I'll get clear. So in that sourcing part, Bruce, I will identify, you know, once we've created the blueprint, I will go out and identify who are the best 40, 50, 60 people Uh on the planet Yep. To come be so so I've had this argument with some of the top venture capital investors around the country, and in the end, every single one of them says, Dave, actually you're correct. I secede the point. I see your point and you're correct. Yeah. And and what I've said to these people is, you know, look, Fred, you're oftentimes creating more damage than you are good when you say to an entrepreneur, hey, here's a great CFO. Yeah, yeah. Because any two reasonably intelligent people could look at a a resume and say, wow, that's a great CFO. And they could potentially hire that person. It could be the biggest mistake of their life. And the reason is because that's not the task at hand. Yeah. The task at hand is, is this a great CFO for us? Those two little words for us change everything. Right. Because then it's about a process of defining, first and foremost, who we are and then getting that clarity around who we need. Yeah, it's really I love that idea that at first understand thyself, you know, <laughs> like really you know, look, look, look at yourself first before you start figuring out who is the best person to bring in the company. I have to understand who we are and what do we need? Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Okay. So in terms of the process, you know, yeah. so number one is, is sourcing, right? So I'll identify 40, 50, 60 candidates, you know, and, and it's absolutely, um, you know, it's important to, you know, it doesn't have to be 40 people, but it, but it has to be a substantial enough amount. You know, I'm just giving you kind of like that. That's usually my standard. It's, it's somewhere between 40 to 60. Sometimes it's 80 or a hundred, whatever it needs to be. Right. And then usually out of about 60 people, I will personally engage about 35 of those people. Okay. Out of those 35, and and that's what, uh, out of those 35 people, then I will put in front of my client the best five to nine candidates. And every single time that I do that, Bruce, that results in two, oftentimes three finalist candidates that are so strong that the client is going to have a pickle of a time deciding which one of these to hire. Yeah. So it's really, so, so you've got the kind of the questions and the filtering process and you know, the numbers that you need at each stage yeah. to get, to get to that, a high, you know, three, two to three, highly, highly qualified, high degree of cultural fit for that group. So they can actually make a decision. Cause I think a lot of times, you know, people end up, it's a false decision. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it's like, it's two bad just, candidates or, you know, one yeah. pretty good candidate and one the horrible. So they're like, oh yeah, we got to decide. Really yeah. no decision there. Oftentimes, um, look, they just haven't met enough people or, or they haven't met enough of the right people. So by creating the blueprint and, and my process is designed. So if you're hiring that accountant, first of all, all six of those candidates coming in for an interview are already going to have a hundred percent of the technical capabilities. Yeah. Required, right? So that's like table stakes. That's a minimum. So that then we can do the qualitative work of really digging in to their cultural fit, right? That, that stuff under the waterline. Yeah. No, that's great. Um, 
Uh, so we're gonna we're gonna hit time here. What if people want to find out more about you? Uh, want more information about the book? Want to get into these three steps in more detail? Want to get the blueprint? All that stuff because uh, we've covered a lot of great things, and we could probably do another three episodes on all this. <laughs> what, what's the best way to get a hold of that information and um, you know get more, learn more about this process and, and how you work? Yep. So uh, I'm at DavePartners.com. www.DavePartners.com, uh, and you can also find me at DaveCarvahal.com. Right. I will put those links in the show notes here and we'll list the book and make sure people and know And the how book to- is available everywhere. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, uh, HarperCollins published it. And, um, you, you know, look, uh, uh, there's a lot of work that goes into making it a New York Times bestseller. I haven't done that work, you know, <laughs> largely because I'm not that, you know, that's not important to me. Yeah, uh, what is important is that it gets into the right hands. Yeah. And, um, and those people seem to be finding me. Yeah. No, excellent. Like I said, it, it, this has been hugely valuable for the audience here. Just the insight you had, the experiences you've had as an entrepreneur and having been through this process personally several times, finding the right people, getting the right teams together, uh, you know, achieving uh, significant results. Uh, it's just fascinating to hear how you've kind of really zeroed in on this talent side and how to help these companies who have this amazing opportunity, but also ama- amazing amounts of pressure to make it work, uh, making sure they find the right people, get in the right roles so everyone be successful. Dave, this has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time today. Awesome. Thank you, Bruce. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Scaling Up Services with business coach Bruce Eckfeldt. To find a full list of podcast episodes, download the tools and worksheets, and access other great content, visit the website at scalingupservices.com. And don't forget to sign up for the free newsletter at scalingupservices.com slash newsletter. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.